can be found on page 606 of your Bibles. Psalm 110. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that today we have an opportunity through the celebration of Christ the King in our liturgical calendar to take a step back and to look at what it really means for Christ to be our King. We pray that you will help us to respond rightly. We pray that you will keep us awake, alert, and focus on your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. King Louis Fourteenth of France, who preferred to be called Louis the Great, declared, I am the state. When he died in 1715, his court was the most magnificent in Europe, and his funeral was the most spectacular. In the church, where the ceremony was performed, his body lay in a golden coffin. And to dramatize his greatness, orders had been given that the cathedral would be very dimly lit with only one special candle that was to be set above his coffin. And as the thousands of people in attendance waited in silence, the archbishop came up and he began to speak. Slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle and said, only God is great. Now we see here a right response in understanding God's greatness and placing the king in his place. However, in our gospel reading today, we see a problem. You see, people have heard about Jesus and about how he is claiming great things about himself. Now, how would you feel if someone came and claimed that he's the rightful king and he sets himself in a very high and exalted position that only God can grant? Jesus did this as he claim, claims that only God can grant. And some might think, but he was just a king, isn't he? So can he claim these great things? Or is he an arrogant person, just like King Louis in our story earlier? Have you considered that? Is it right for us to exalt and worship Jesus so highly or have we got carried away and exalted him too much? And this is what we will look at this week as we celebrate the festival of Christ the King as in our liturgical calendar. What does it mean that Christ is King? Now come with me to Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now have a look at the header of the psalm. And this is what comes before verse 1. Now we know that the title given to the psalm, here it says, sit at my right hand, is not from the original text. The title is given by editors. It is meant to help us recognize the Psalms, but it's not scripture. So we'll ignore that. However, before we go to verse 1, we see a Psalm of David. 
Now, some of you may not realize this, but this attribution to the psalm is actually a part of Scripture. It should, in fact, be part of verse 1, but it's kept this way in our modern Bibles to make it easier to reference and read. So what that means is that we need to read this introduction as part of God's words too. So when we see that this is a psalm of David, it tells us that there are two ways to understand this. One is, it was written by someone in King David's court and is written about him. Or secondly, it is written by King David himself. And of course, if it's written by King David itself, that introduces other problems. Because in verse 1, David then seems to call someone else as his Lord. And then you have to ask this question, who is greater than David when David is the chosen king of Israel? Isn't David the one who rules directly under God? So who can be greater than King David? And that is exactly the question that Jesus asked his audience in our gospel reading today. Now, both views can be correct. Either it was written about David, or David is writing this about his Lord. So which one is it? And the answer is simple. Now, in our gospel reading, Jesus points to this psalm, quotes from it, and he asks the question, who is this Lord that David is speaking about? That David is speaking about. In other words, Jesus attributes this psalm to King David. To Jesus, this psalm is King David speaking about the Lord. Now, because of that, we can confidently say that this is a psalm written by King David and not by someone else to tell us about King David. And if King David wrote this, then who is this Lord that he is speaking of here? Now, let's have a look at the different people in the psalm. Now, in verse 1, there is the Lord mentioned here. And you'll notice it's all in capital letters. Now, whenever we see the word Lord written all in capital letters, it's actually pointing out God's personal covenantal name, Yahweh. You see, the Hebrew people, being very respectful of God, decided they didn't want to use or pronounce God's name when they are not in the right mindset, when they are not worshipping him correctly. So to avoid that, they removed his name and replaced it with something else. And today in our Bibles, we put capital letter L-O-R-D to replace God's personal name. So now we know that this is talking about the Lord God and then someone else that King David addresses as my Lord. And it seems here that God is promising this Lord that he will make all the enemies of this Lord into his footstool. This means God is promising that this king will rule over his vanquished enemies. They will be cast down. He will be exalted. And as we continue reading the psalm, we see a picture of this highly exalted king. In verse 2, we see God sending forth his scepter to this king. His symbol of authority and rulership comes from God. And it is through that that he rules over all people. Therefore, this Lord is the king that God establishes. Now, 
the psalm were compiled long after the death of King David. They were compiled, in fact, after the destruction of the first temple, after the exile of the Israelites to Babylon, after they have come back as a broken people seeking to rebuild their nation. Now, if King David is writing this psalm to point to his son, King Solomon, who ruled over Israel at the height of Israel's glory. What point then is there for the people who compile the psalm to keep this psalm and to read the psalm in worship when Solomon failed? Under Solomon, Jerusalem fell. If the psalm was a proclamation of God giving victory to Solomon, then this is a failed prophecy. There would be no reason to keep the psalm while these people are standing in the very ruins of Jerusalem, looking at the broken walls of the temple. There is no king in the Old Testament that fits this criteria of the Lord who's given all victory and rules over all things. So why did the psalmist include this psalm? Now, in our Old Testament reading, we came to 2 Samuel 7. And there, we see the promise that God makes to King David. And if the psalmist saw that promise, that God will exalt a future king from David's lineage, and this king's kingdom will be eternal, then it makes sense for them to keep the psalm, to keep it and worship through the words of the psalm. You see, the psalmists were looking for the coming of the Messiah, the one who will be seated at God's right hand, the one who receives all power and authority, the one who holds the scepter that God gives to rule over all things. And so we see the psalm does not talk about David or Solomon because they never fulfilled this. At most, they were shadows pointing forward to the one who comes to fulfill this. Now for us, on this side of the cross, we can see the answer so clearly. We can see that the king that is promised in the psalm, the king that is promised throughout every prophecy of the Old Testament, has come. It is Jesus. He who came and proclaimed, the kingdom of God is at hand. So friends, when Jesus speaks very exaltedly about his authority and power, when he claims this familiarity with God, he isn't bragging. He is indeed the messianic king. He is the one whom God has promised that he will exalt, seat him next to him at his right hand, the one that God will give all power and authority. So it is Jesus that this psalm so powerfully speaks about. And that means we are to recognize who Jesus really is. If we read the psalm, we can see he's not merely a good teacher. He's not a healer, a worker of miracles. He's your king. He is God's chosen king. So what does this fact mean for us Christians? Come to verse 3. 
your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now this king will have his people coming to him, offering their submission to him freely. And these are people who are called holy. And as he accepts these people, the king is then shown in vigor and splendor as if revealing the dew of his youth. Now, we know that God's people are not holy by themselves. It is Jesus, through his death on the cross, through the removal of sins, who makes his people holy. And now that he has made them holy through his death on the cross, and Christ is raised up and exalted. He is now the king. Now these people who are made clean by Christ are free, therefore, to respond to this great salvation. And the right response is they come to Christ, offer themselves to this risen king. So if you are Christian and you accept that Christ is your king, then you offer yourself freely to him, free from sin. You should aim to live as his followers. You come to him in holy garments. So people should look at you and think, there, this is a follower of Christ. I can see it in his behavior. Your actions, your characters, they are meant to reflect the character of the Lord that you submit to. So you will have to live a life of submission to his word, a life of obedience, and it's not for us to pick and choose what we want to obey. That is not obedience. We should then be people who are consistently reading the scriptures, listening to what our king speaks to us, so that we may live our lives in the knowledge of how we should be serving our king. So how are we then to live our daily lives? We look to what Jesus informs our life. So how we are to decide on things that we want to do, we do it in light of Jesus. So let's just take, for example, when we're talking about submission to government, which comes under your submission to Christ. When you are tempted to fill up your tax return with some bogus claims, will you be honest and end up having to pay a lot of extra money to the government? Or will you think it's okay to cheat just a little bit because, you know, it'll save a lot of money. Government's so rich anyway. And you think it doesn't harm anyone. And ultimately, you see, this is a decision that you make. And how you decide actually reflects on how you see your submission to Jesus as king. If you submit to Jesus as king, then you will listen to what he says about the authorities and render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. What about thinking about marriage, about how that submission looks like in your life? 
If you find a girl or boy who you really like, but is not a Christian, would you argue, well, isn't it okay to fall in love and get married? After all, love wins. I keep my religion, he keeps their religion. That shouldn't be important. Would you argue that? Or would you say, I should listen to what God says. I should listen to what my king demands of me. I should not be unequally yoked. I don't want to live my life with a person who does not accept the lordship of Christ over my life. I don't want to live with a person who himself does not submit to my Lord. How can I serve Christ with all my life if I am married to someone who doesn't bend their knee to Christ? You see, your decision shows your obedience to Christ. Shows if you really see him as king. And what if you're already married to someone who's not Christian? Well, you still have an option of how to respond. You can say, well, too bad, done deal, I'm stuck, and I'll just live my life. Or you can say, I will try my best to bring my gospel to my spouse every day through words, through the decisions I make, to the priorities that I choose, to how I choose to interact, and all the things in my life I'm going to use to bring the gospel to this person. You could say, and I'm going to pray day and night so that Christ will soften this person's heart and bring him to obey him. So if you see Jesus as your king, your decisions will be influenced by him. So therefore, this psalm is also a call for us to see that Christ is our king. And that calls us to look at our own life and to have a tally to see how your life looks like, how obedient it is to Christ. Now, what if you're not a Christian? Then is Christ not your king? Of course not. He is still the king, but you are his enemy. And God's promise is that he will make you into his footstool. Your refusal to submit to Christ reveals your rebellion against this rightful king and ultimately, you will submit to Christ. Either you will change your mind, you'll bend your knees and follow Christ, or you will be made to submit as his vanquished enemy and then destroyed in his judgment to come. So remember who Christ is. He is the king. And you must decide today how you will relate to him. But remember, make this decision in the knowledge of Christ's character. Because while you were still enemies with him, Christ died for you. So wouldn't you want to follow such a loving king. With that then, we come to the second point in our passage in verse 4. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now God has determined that he will make Christ the ultimate king and God is not going to change his mind. In fact, 
God even goes to show us that this kingship of Christ goes more than what kings normally do. Christ is also a priest. And in number 16, we can see a picture of what a priest truly is. Now in Numbers chapter 16, the people of God have rebelled against God. And God in response unleashes a terrible plague among them. From person to person, the plague moves, killing them. And the high priest, Aaron, ran and stood between the living and the dead. And there, in the midst of the chaos, death on one side, the living on one side, he offers a sacrifice that appeases God, protects the people, and gives mercy to the living. And that is the picture of what a priest truly is. Now, don't get this mixed up with the Anglican term that we use for priest, which is actually short for presbyter, which means elder, which refers to leaders of God's people. But rather, the priest that's being spoken of here is the one who stands in between as the intermediary between the judgment of God and the mercy of God. And unlike Aaron, Jesus is a greater high priest he not only protects his people from the physical judgment, but Jesus makes an offering of his very life for the sake of his people's eternal soul. And so we see Jesus, the king, has the role of a priest king. He is the one who is the great intermediary of salvation, which he has purchased by his own blood. And then we see he isn't just a high priest. His priesthood is the priesthood of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a mysterious priest king that we see in Genesis 14. And it is to Melchizedek that Abraham himself makes an offering unto the Lord. And this happens even before the temple, even before the sacrifice, before Aaron, before the priests of the Levites. And so we see that the priesthood of Jesus supersedes the priesthood of the descendants of Abraham, supersedes that of Aaron and the Levites. Now, we don't know much about Melchizedek, but in the text he's identified as the king of Salem or the king of Shalom. The word Shalom means peace. And that is who Jesus truly is. He is the true king of peace, the true king of Shalom. Because through the worthy atonement that this king-priest makes comes eternal, everlasting peace. And this means for those who trust in Jesus and come to him as their king, they also come to him as their priest, as their mediator between God and themselves. So, if your faith in your salvation comes from anything other than the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, if it's based on your good works, the things that you do, or how much money you give, then you have not put your trust in the true priest that God has provided. Jesus is the priest. Therefore, Christians 
are to rely on Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. So come to him. In all your trespasses, come to him and seek that forgiveness that comes through your faith in Jesus. And the third point of our passage is from verse 5 to 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And here we see God's final assurance that God himself is at this king's right hand. And interestingly, you would have noticed, it is the king who first sits on God's right hand. And here God is at the king's right hand. And God shows that he will destroy all power and authorities that opposes this king. And God himself is going to bring judgment to the nations. And so we can see that it is God who is the one who is truly fighting the battle. Yet at the same time, we come to verse 7, and you see that the king, the king here is pictured as if he's a warrior king. So in verse 7, we get a picture as if someone who's wearied from fighting. And just like how God opened up a spring of water to sate Samson's thirst, as he complained that he would have died of thirst after slaying a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass, in that same way, this king will drink. And he will be vindicated and he lifts up his head in victory. And I believe that this points to the passion of Christ as he faithfully serves God, going unto the cross to die. And as he dies there in faithful obedience to God at the cross, as that great weariness of death comes upon him, knowing that he has fought the great battle faithfully, God gives him a picture of water, revival from the dead. And we see that God vindicates and God exalts this Christ above every power and authority. God lifts up his head in response to this great victory that he has procured. And then for us, we too remember that this king who has drunk the water from the brook has been lifted up high as king, this king promises us to revival through the water of life that he himself provides. Come to Christ, drink of the water of life that he provides, and you too will be lifted. You too will be exalted just like your king. Life is found in King Jesus. And so we come to him, we put our trust in him. So we Christians should live in light of this new life that Christ gives us. Living by walking in righteousness in the new life, rather than seeking to go back to our old sinful desires of the old life. And so we come to the end and we see that this psalm teaches us three important things about Jesus. He is king. Submit to him. Then we learn that this is our king 
who is our priest as well. So rely only on him for the forgiveness of our sins. And finally, we see that this king is a victorious warrior king. Christ has already won the battle once and for all. And in his victory, brings us life. So we can be assured of our trust in what he has done. So you see, putting all these things together, we can exalt Jesus above all others because God himself has exalted Christ and seated him at the right hand. So our right response then is to give Jesus everything of ourselves, and that is how we honor God the Father, by honoring God the Son, whom he has sent to take on flesh, to die on the cross, to be exalted in victory, and then seated him at his right hand to rule over all things in power and dominion. So what we have heard today is an invitation by this exalted king. So if you don't know him as king, if right now you don't think of Christ as your king, then this invitation is for you to repent, for you to believe in him, because he is the one who is able to fully save you. He is the one that leads you to eternal hope and joy. And if you are someone who knows him as a king, but you are rebellious, choosing to do things your own way, not in response to Christ, then be reminded, this is a warrior king, the one who will crush his enemies. Repent. Come in obedience and live your lives in light of his world. Don't seek to be your own master because in doing so, you are rejecting his kingship over you. And finally, if you are someone who accept him as king and you seek to obey him, no matter how imperfectly, no matter how many times you fail, if you seek to obey him, if you love him as your king, then remember that this is the victorious king. He has already won the battle. And so in that comfort, you can persevere on in obedience and trust. Sir Leonard Wood once visited the King of France. The king was so pleased with Sir Leonard Wood that he invited him for dinner the next day. But Sir Leonard did not reply. But the next day, Sir Leonard went to the palace and the king was surprised. He said, why, Sir Leonard, I did not expect to see you. How is it that you are here? And Sir Leonard replied, Did not your majesty invite me to dine with you? Yes, replied the king, but you did not answer my invitation. Then it was that Sir Leonard uttered one of the choicest sentences of his life. This was his reply. A king's invitation is never to be answered. It is to be obeyed. You have heard the invitation. And how you respond is important. 
It is not about making proclamations and resolutions. It is about obedience. You who have heard this invitation that Christ is your king, that you are called to submit yourself to him and worship him, how will you respond? So today, as we celebrate the feast of Christ the King, let us then seek to draw near to him, to find abundant life in this king that God has exalted. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Christ is the King that you have exalted. And Father, though we have all gone our own ways, we have not submitted to our King rightly. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to renew us. We ask you to refresh us so that we can submit to our King. And Father, we give thanks for those of us who are able to do their best to follow this King. We pray that you will strengthen them to help them love this king more as they continue to more and more obey him in their lives. Father, we pray that you will give us joy and comfort as we submit to this king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.